And welcome back to Catholics Coast to Coast, another chance where every week we get to see what's happening at Podcast Central at EWTN.com slash radio. That way you can not miss out on what's already being talked about to deepen your walk with God, but also as we get closer to Easter and the Lenten season, something that can really challenge you. I am Ace McCain, glad to be a part of what's happening here at EWTN Radio, and as we get into this week's episode, let's see what we can do to really dissect the Word with this week's Word on the Word. This Sunday, our first reading is from the book of Job. Now, I have a soft spot for poor Job because he really went through it. Early on in the book of Job, the writer explains that God greatly blessed Job. God told Satan that there was no one else on earth quite like Job because he was so devoted and God allowed Satan to test him. This weekend, we hear part of Job's reply to one of his friends about all the horrible things that have been going on in his life. And things were bad. He even said, remember that my life is like the wind. I shall not see happiness again. But you know what amazes me about Job? He's not afraid to take his complaints directly to God. At one point, he says, I am filled with restlessness until the dawn. Do you ever feel restless in life? How many times in that restlessness have you chosen to find a distraction outside of yourself rather than just talking to God? I know I have. When I can't process something, I have a tendency to scroll through social media or put on my favorite TV show. Instead, I need to stop and just talk to God about what's going on in my life. That's why this week we challenge you to reflect on a time where you turn a moment of lament into a prayer. Great insights from this weekend's Mass. Make sure you take that with you. If you want to hear more of the Word on the Word, we've got Podcast Central ready to house those for you. Just go to EWTN.com slash radio. And as we continue with this week's Catholics Coast to Coast, On the Journey is having a discussion about the Catholic Church, the four marks. It's one, holy, Catholic, and apostolic. We've got the latest of what that really can break down for us. Matt, Ken, and Kenny really giving us some insights into maybe how we can be meant as the home for all people. So let's jump into the conversation. This is On the Journey with this week's Catholics Coast to Coast. Well, hello and welcome to another One Horse Open episode of On the Journey with Matt and Ken and Kenny. We are with the Coming Home Network. We all came from various evangelical backgrounds in our cases and ended up in the Catholic Church, and that's kind of what we're here to explain. Ken, Kenny, how are you? Doing good. Uh, we have been going through the four marks of the church, and we did an episode on, uh, if you don't know what the four marks are, the church is one, holy, Catholic, and apostolic, according to the Nicene Creed. We did an episode on the word one. We did an episode on the word holy. We are now on our third episode <laughs> on the word Catholic. <laughs> and so, final. And yeah. final. Third and final. And final episode on the third word Catholic before we move third to apostolic. Uh, that being said, if, as we understood from the last two episodes we did on the word Catholic, that the church is the world reconciled, right, uh, as the catechism yeah. states, that this is supposed to be the home for all humankind, then we should probably mm-hmm. let people know about this. So right, uh, I right. guess that's where we start this part of the conversation. Yeah, we want to we wanna do a little bit of review on how we um, have been unpacking this word Catholic over the last couple of episodes, because it is, as you said in the first episode on the four marks, Matt, this is an article of faith. It's just not, it's not just cool things Catholics believe. This is part of both the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, and it's an ecclesial article of faith, so we're bound to believe it, but what in the world does it mean? And so, um, in the first episode, remember guys, when we talked about Catholic the first time, the catechism 
begins by defining that word for us. Uh, it's the universal church of Jesus. And in that episode, we unpacked the reality that that doesn't just mean everyone who believes in Jesus. That doesn't account, as we saw, for all the ways in which the word is actually used by those who use it. We saw that there were aspects to the church's universality, such as its leaders, its worship, and its doctrine. I see these like pearls on a necklace. They all go together, and then there's a string that holds all these pearls together, and that string is um, the presence of Jesus throughout all history to this particular church. And uh, and that, by the way, is going to come out more when we talk about apostolicity. But this is the church founded by Jesus, the one church which can be found in every place where the successors, the successors of the apostles are found, the Eucharist is found, and where those who join themselves to the bishop and that valid Eucharist and the church's teaching are found. That's the big idea of the meaning of the word Catholic. And then last time... Uh, we talked about who belongs to the Catholic Church. And Ken used the really great device of concentric circles there. Uh, Think of them, the innermost circle, as those who embrace a full union with Jesus and his church. Like they want to be part of it. They believe in it. They willingly associate themselves with it in every way. And they're faithful to Christ and to what it means to be a Christian in communion with the Catholic Church. They belong to the church, but then the next uh, circle out, we talked about the concept of mooring lines which uh, and, and, and cleats, things that we have in common in terms of how we think and believe. Um, if we find people like that who are not properly uh, housed, as it were, in the Catholic Church, we still feel and see a sense of belonging, that they in those ways, belong with us and those things which belong to us in, though an imperfect way, unite us to those people in different ways. And then the third concentric circle, we talked about um, by virtue of the claims of Jesus that all of heaven and earth belongs to him. Uh, He's the Lord of, of heaven and earth. That in a sense, all of humanity belongs to Jesus and is... um properly speaking, the the mission field of the church. So we're we're going after all the things that belong to Jesus. He has a universal claim on the whole cosmos. And you you can leave that discussion last week with a sense of tension, which we hope this episode will bring some resolution to. And the tension is, well, what is to be done about the fact that there has not been a full practical realized reconciliation of everyone and everything to Jesus. Answer? Uh, Mission. That church needs to join the mission of God, which we're going to unpack today in paragraphs 849 to 856. So with that in mind, a little introduction. uh, Toss it to you, Ken. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you for teeing that up for me, Kenny. Thank you very much. Okay. I'm going to launch into paragraph 849 where we hear right away about the church's missionary mandate, okay? And the word mandate, that's a strong word. Listen to what paragraph 849 of the Catechism says. Having been divinely sent to the nations that she might be 
the universal sacrament of salvation. And I'll come back to that. I love that phrase, the universal Mm -hmm. sacrament of salvation. The church, in obedience to the command of its founder, and because it is demanded by her own essential universality, strives to preach the gospel to all men. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always until the close of the age. I hope you caught those two words in obedience, the word obedience to the command of her founder, and also the word demand. And because it is demanded by her essential universality, the church strives to preach the gospel to all men. Okay, two points on this quickly. Um, the first is simply how much I love that description of the church as the universal sacrament of salvation. Okay, as we, as we know, um, the church teaches us that a sacrament is an effectual sign. Okay, that's how we can think of a sacrament. It is a sign. Baptism does point to something. Baptism speaks of the washing of regeneration and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Confirmation speaks of a unique spiritual strengthening. The Eucharist speaks of the body and blood of Christ offered up and shared among us as God's people. But these sacraments are signs. Here's the thing that makes them a sacrament. They are signs that actually convey the graces that are depicted by the sign. They actually, uh, the grace is by the power of God is actually given to us that the sign indicates or points toward. And just just briefly for for an example, I remember you guys how shocked I was as a Baptist when I first began to realize that this is how the early church viewed baptism. And I want to just read uh, two lines actually in his classic work titled "The Emergence of the Catholic Tradition." Um, the very great Yale historian of doctrine, the late Yaroslav Pelikan, tells us that according to the teaching of the early church fathers, and he just states this as though there, there's no controversy about it, uh, having summed up you know, the teaching of so many of the fathers, he says, according to the teaching of the early church fathers, four basic gifts are given in baptism, the remission of sins, deliverance from death, regeneration, and the and the bestowal of the Holy Spirit. So, you know, baptism is a sign. I believed that during all the eleven years I was a Baptist pastor. But it's an efficacious sign. It's a sign that does what is depicted by the sign. And the same is true of the church. The church is both a sign of salvation, and what the Catechism is telling us here is that it is also the means through which salvation is extended throughout the world. The church is the universal sacrament of salvation. Okay, and the second point that I wanted to make is is, is this. Because the Catholic Church is the universal sacrament of salvation, quoting again from the paragraph that I just read, I quote, the church in obedience to the command of her founder and because it is demanded by her own essential universality, strives to preach the gospel to all men. And I want to make a just a brief comment here. There are some who argue that there are certain kinds of people to whom the church should not preach the gospel. Okay, 
And I just want to state, this is not true. This would contradict the paragraph that we just read. Now, the most controversial in this regard, and this takes us back briefly to a subject we talked about in our last episode, is the idea of evangelism with those of, of the Jewish faith. This is this is probably the one that is talked about more often than any other. But even here, the church does not back off from its missionary mandate, which is the subject of the paragraph I just read. And, and I want to just read a passage that I think is very illuminating. We don't need to go into depth on it. We don't need to talk about all the threads of thought that, that, that would easily flow from it. But I want you to hear it. This is a passage from a document titled The Gifts and Calling of God are Irrevocable. It was issued on the 50th anniversary of the Vatican II document, Nostra Aetate, by the Dicastery for Promoting Christian Unity. Just listen to it. It is easy to understand that the so-called mission to the Jews is a very delicate and sensitive matter for Jews because in their eyes it involves the very existence of the Jewish people. This question also proves to be awkward for Christians because for them, the universal salvific significance of Jesus Christ and consequently the universal mission of the church are of fundamental importance. So it's awkward both directions. Continuing to read, the church is therefore obliged to view evangelization to Jews who believe in the one God in a different manner from that to people of other religions and world views. And, and notice just briefly that it's talking here about Jews who believe in God. It's talking about Jews who believe in God. We're obliged to view evangelization with Jews who believe in the one God differently, in a different manner than we might with others, okay, other world religions, other, other views. And then continuing to quote, in, con in concrete terms, this means that the Catholic Church neither conducts nor supports any specific institutional mission directed toward Jews. While there is a principled rejection of an institutional Jewish mission, Christians are nonetheless called to bear witness to their faith in Jesus Christ, also to Jews. Although they should do so in a humble and sensitive manner, acknowledging that Jews are bearers of God's word, referring to the Old Testament, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the original men, the, the people who received God's word, acknowledging that Jews are bearers of God's word, and particularly in view of the great tragedy of the Shoah, the Holocaust. And what I hear this passage saying is, is simply this, because of the unique role of the people of Israel, the Jewish people, in the history of redemption, and also in light of the recent tragedy of, of the Shoah, the church does not want to institutionalize any kind of mission to the Jewish people, but at the same time, it commands all Christians to share their faith in Jesus Christ with all people, including the Jewish people. Anyway, that, that's all that I wanted to say about that. If you have any comments to make, please do so. So I don't have any comments to make about that because I feel like, again, when it comes to this question of Catholicism and Judaism, I don't want to say anything the church hadn't said, <laughs> right? I don't want to step into that world accidentally. I kind of like just letting that stuff speak for itself. I'm more interested in this question of the Great Commission and how you would have thought about what you were told to do as pastors 
because I think every Christian that I ever knew um, in my world of, you know, Methodist, Nazarene, non-denominational through, you know, attending a Christian liberal arts college, everywhere I went, right, we all understood that we were meant to carry out the Great Commission. And I think if I had to quote it, I would be able to quote this verse from memory, probably from middle school. But I don't think that I would have ever... I think that I would have said these words, but in my mind, what I have, what I would have thought was, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, getting them to ask Jesus Christ into their heart as their personal Lord and Savior, and right. teaching them yeah, to it, observe <laughs> all that I've commanded. Yeah it, yeah, it definitely would have been teaching them to obey every, yeah, yeah. It wouldn't have, it would not have been baptizing in the name of the Father yeah, and the Son right. and the Holy Spirit, right? Uh, because in no, my no. mind, uh, so, it, I don't know how this disconnect filtered down, but what I would have said in my mind, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. This is what my theology would have actually been, was teaching them to accept me as their personal Lord and Savior, and later when they want to show to the community that they're ready to be serious, mature Christians, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Like, because that's what we actually believed. But yeah, it's just, it's yeah, crazy and then, that... Yeah, and then began to teach them to obey as long as they're very, very careful to to uh, to distinguish obedience as something required, uh, you know, for, you know, rather you than know, something that flows forth from their previous belief. Yes, I mean, you were you were a, a once saved, always saved guy, and I was not. But like I'm telling you, I would have not. It, it's so elementary to to me now what is implied by the Great Commission, and it would have been completely invisible <laughs> to me in the way that the church <laughs> understands it, which seems to be the more literal, direct way to understand what Jesus is saying. Yeah. I think I'll I'll jump in here guys if it's okay and in answer to Matt's question also use my answer as a segue into paragraph 850 which kind of uh, leads, you know, right out of his question into the next flow of thought. And I think I'm with you Matt, you know, initially I think this text in Matthew 28 um I understood it as an imperative to go, quote, go get people saved uh, through some formulaic process, whereas the the Catholic Church doesn't teach that preaching the gospel is fulfilling some kind of formula. Um, Instead, it, it teaches what the Bible teaches, that preaching the gospel is an imperative, a mandate of the church based on a reality that has taken place as a result of what has happened through Jesus in the world. That, uh, namely, that because of the the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and his ascension to the right hand of God and his claim on all of heaven and earth as his rightful property, because that's true, which is what he says, by the way, in the verse just before the Great Commission, he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. It's on that basis that we are therefore, in other words, since Jesus is in charge of heaven and earth, you therefore go out to all of the nations of the world and bring them into this life, this real life that that Jesus has made possible. How? Through baptism, which is entry, you know, immersion into the Trinitarian life that um, that we're going to talk about in the next paragraph, and then teaching them obedience to the king. 
Like that's what the community is. It's the obedient community that follows King Jesus, who's Lord of heaven and earth. And you are to go out and in every way possible, see that become a reality through your mission. And so this next paragraph, 850, kind of takes off on what, well, what does that look like? You know, how did, and this is what the next several paragraphs will unpack. What does the missionary impulse of the church look like in real time? Here in 850, it says the origin and purpose of mission. The Lord's missionary mandate is ultimately grounded in the eternal love of the most holy trinity. Okay. In other words, here God's calling all of humanity into the life of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit out of love. And then it goes on and says, the church on earth is by her nature missionary since to the plan of the Father, she has as her origin the mission of the Son and the Holy Spirit. The ultimate purpose of mission, here it is, is none other than to make men share in the communion between the Father and the Son in their spirit of love. This, to me, the way I, the way I make sense of this whole thing is... The biblical story tells us what God is up to, that God has, by his own free love and an act of sheer love and, and his will, has created the whole world and the human race and wants to bring the human race into a real relationship, a familial relationship with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But we have wandered away like the prodigal son, the parable of the prodigal son. We've run away from home. And so the mission of the church is to bring the wayward son back home again. It's our mission to bring that the, the wayward humanity back into the household of the Father, himself, the missionary God. And I don't know about you guys, but I didn't really see God as a missionary for, for a lot of, of years that I was a Christian. Uh, I started to see him this way before I became Catholic. Now, as I learn how to think as a Catholic and I, I hear the catechism, I see God as the missionary and um, Christ as the fulfillment of, of God's mission and the church as the instrument of Christ's mission to the church. And, uh, and that's why I said at the beginning, Matt, before I, before I sign off on this and toss it to you guys, that this is a very Christmassy episode because that really is what Chris, Christmas means. It's, it's the Messiah has been sent and the Messiah who has been sent on a mission sends us on a mission. We join his mission to reconcile all people back to God. So in that, in that way, final thought, we are the missionary partner of the Trinity in the world. All right. So I don't want to get into the weeds too far on this, but I actually did see God as a missionary. Uh, and it is because if you go back and watch my particular journey to the Catholic faith, which we did several episodes ago, by the way, stay tuned because I think our next series is going to be Kenny's story, which will be a blast. <laughs> but the reason I did see God as a missionary oh or came to see him more as a missionary was because uh, art and beauty and literature were a major part of my journey. And so the idea of how beauty function and how God is speaking to people through the things that he has made, through the world that he has created, was something that was resonating with me deeply mm -hmm. uh, for actually several years before um, before I became Catholic. And I was trying to find the Christian 
stream that seemed to be able to make sense of that. And that's part of how I ended up in the Catholic Church. So I did see that. <laughs> um, but the, the one other thing I'll mention about this is that if you had taken uh, that first paragraph we did, 849, which talks about the church as the universal sacrament of salvation, and taken this paragraph and the next couple that we were that we're going to go through, um, this would have sounded like a lot of it could have just been, is easily been lifted from the notes of like a 1987 gathering of evangelism explosion, or like you might right. find it in like a scratch pad and the organizational documents at the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. Like a big chunk of this right. right here in the middle is like how a lot of evangelicals think about their duty. They wouldn't You're capitalize right. the word church, right? But there would be a sense that the people of God are wrapped up in this somehow. Yeah, and that and that this goes back to the idea that God is not acting in the world without a church, without his right. church. This is the way God acts in the world, and, and that's another way of kind of bringing light to the 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 truth that we learned last week, which is outside the church, or let's put it this way: without the church, there's no salvation. This is how God brings the, the saving work of Jesus to the world it's through the church. Sorry, Ken. You know, I, no, <laughs> to you. no, it's all right. You know, I, I I'm sitting here thinking about whether I want to. No, I don't want to go off on the tangent. So I I I, I want to <laughs> say this. I have um. I do have a view of the gospel now that is so much more beautiful in, in my eyes than I had before, mm -hmm. because you you said it so well. You developed the meaning of that paragraph in the Catechism so well, Kenny. But we're beginning with the eternal love and happiness of the triune God, and yes. and God's desire in creation then to have that love, to have that happiness just spill over into the lives of countless sons and daughters made in his image and likeness. And then through Christ now, the church joins with him to go out into all the world and to bring that message and to bring everyone in. Because I, I, I'll simply state this, during the years when I was a hardcore Calvinist, I didn't have that view of salvation history. My ultimate view was that God's desire in the world was to display the full range of his attributes. So, he ordained from be, from before the beginning of time some to be saved, and he ordained some to be damned, so that he could display his mercy and goodness on the one hand, and then display his wrath and judgment on the other hand, and and, and that that was his goal. That was his goal: the display of these attributes. And now I just see it so differently now. And this takes us so beautifully to the next paragraph, by the way, because the first paragraph then that I dealt with was about the mandate. The fact that there is a mission missionary mandate for us. And then you, Kenny, in the next paragraph, you took off on explaining the origin of this mandate. Where does it come from in the very life of God and God's desire to, to draw all of humanity into that life again? Well, the next paragraph, 851, it, uh, goes to the motivation. It talks about the motivation for the church's missionary work. This is what is zeroed in on. This is what is focused on. And the church's motivation, it turns out, is exactly the same as God's. For God so loved the world. That's what the passage says, right? That's on like the, every single, isn't it on every single cup, you know, uh, you know uh, 
at, at the In-N-Out Burger place, you know, or some some restaurant like that had John 316 like printed on the bottom of every single cup. But our motivation is the same as God's for God so loved the world is the same as St. Paul's uh, motivation that he expressed in 2 Corinthians 514 when he said, for the love of Christ compels us. This is the motivation. Now, okay, listen to the catechism. This paragraph 851. It is from God's love for all men that the church in every age receives both the obligation and the vigor of her missionary dynamism. For the love of Christ urges us on. Another translation of that passage, 2 Corinthians 5.14. The love of Christ compels us. Indeed, God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's, that's a quotation from 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4. And that's something I, I didn't used to believe that. I did not believe that. But God desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. That is, God wills the salvation of everyone through the knowledge of the truth. Salvation is found in the truth. Those who obey the promptings of the spirit of truth are already on the way of salvation. But the church, to whom this truth has been entrusted, must go out to meet that desire. And here we're back, you know, to these little uh, points of light we talked about last week. Those who are obeying the prompting of the spirit of truth, regardless of who they are, atheist, Muslim, Jew, anybody, are already on the way of salvation. They're, they're moving along that road. But the church to whom this truth has been entrusted must go out to meet their desire so as to bring them the truth. Because she believes in God's universal plan of salvation, the church must be missionary. I spoke a moment ago about the, this notion that there are certain people maybe that the Catholic Church should not evangelize. Well, another idea that floats about these days on the ether on the theological ether, is the idea that Pope Francis opposes evangelism. I, I'm sure you've heard it if you've listened to anybody, you know, YouTubes and podcasts and all that. This idea that Pope Francis opposes evangelism, which I want to deal with here just quickly, okay? And I'll begin by saying that while I wouldn't want to defend every sometimes unclear statement that not simply Pope Francis, but any Pope can make in the course of their lives, this idea is based on a misunderstanding, and I want to say, I want to state that bluntly. Yes, Pope Francis has spoken against what he refers to as proselytism on a number of occasions. Pope Francis has said that proselytism is illicit. He's used that word. He has described proselytism as the strongest poison against the ecumenical path. Pope Francis has said that proselytism among Christians is a grave sin, and he has used the analogy of a soccer team, insisting that the Catholic Church is not a soccer team, you know, uh, running about the globe seeking fans. <laughs> That's an interesting way of saying it. You know, prancing about the globe how, how seeking Argentini fans. How Argentinian. How Argentinian. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Football. Or seeking to, yeah, or seeking yeah. to win... Yeah a competition for members. He, he's spoken in these kinds of ways. On the other hand, I want you to listen to what Pope Francis said in an address that he gave to the Jesuits in Madagascar and Mozambique in 2019. So I'm quoting Pope Francis here. 
What I mean is that evangelism is free. Proselytism, on the other hand, makes you lose your freedom. Proselytism is incapable of creating a religious path in freedom. It always sees people being subjugated in one way or another. In evangelism, the protagonist is God. Expanding Christ's mission to the ends of the earth, that is what the instrument of God's work in the world is when it comes to being one holy apostolic and Catholic church. That's on the journey. For more on this episode and others you might have missed, check us out at Podcast Central, EWTN.com slash radio. And I'm Ace McKay. When Catholics Coast to Coast returns, what is the March for Life experience really like in Washington? The Catholic Conversation this week takes us with Becky Green and how she experienced this year's event. We'll do that coming up next on Catholics Coast to Coast. If it's central to the faith, you can find it on EWTN Podcast Central, featuring the best of EWTN radio, as well as faith-filled podcasts from our friends and affiliates across the nation, all in one place, all free. The destination for great Catholic audio programming is EWTN Podcast Central. It's like podcast heaven. Visit EWTN.com slash radio slash podcast today. Greetings in Christ, everybody, and welcome to the Catholic Conversation. I am Steve Green, Director of Holy Family Institute of Catholic Faith and Life, and I am the Cradle Catholic. And I'm Becky Green. I'm the Director of the Green Homeschooling Institute and everything else in our lives. I'm the convert to the faith, and I am coming to you from Washington, D.C., where we have just participated in the March for Life, which was, I, I don't even have an appropriate adjective as to the type of experience that it was. Um, it was just phenomenal, um, inspiring, profound. We we started out this trip knowing that we were going to be entering into some pretty uh, significant weather conditions. And um, at, least, nature... at least for someone born and raised in Southern California. Yes, so nature nature came through as promised and delivered some very cold temperatures, but also, of course, on the day of the March, snow. So it was snowing since we got up this morning and headed out to the metro uh, to catch the subway to the Basilica for the eight o'clock mass, which was the closing mass um, for the March for Life. It was the mass. It would kick off the day, but it was closing what they had done the day before. And that in and of itself was a beautiful experience and something that we were, you know, super excited that we were able to attend that. We started out the day with with snow falling and it has not stopped. It has not let up. So it was, I'd say, as as Jen Bosold said, who we were mar- whom we were marching with, she said that this is definitely more than an inch. And she's from this the uh, Midwest, so she would know if this is normal. That's right. Yeah, she's this- she's from Ohio, so she's good at eyeballing snowfall as it's happening and coming yeah. up with a running working estimate of how much snow we're talking. So yeah, I, I would yeah. I would take her opinion <laughs> to the bank. But that's so since you've survived it though, that's cool because now no matter what else happens in life, they can never take that away from you. You did the March for Life in the snow yes, and lived to I, tell the tale. Yes, it, it, this is this is something that I can say that I survived and I actually did all right with it. I think it was, um, it was 
uh, one of those things that I was definitely concerned whether or not I would be able to, uh, you know, pull off being in this kind of weather and, and not be whining and crying and, you know, rocking back and forth in some corner somewhere saying it's too cold. I can't do this. But uh, we did just fine. I did manage to lose a glove that uh, and then I managed to lose another glove. So no, Becky, that, tell, tell the listeners, do both of these gloves belong to you? No, or to no, they don't. Two no. separate people, or to the same person. So, uh, so I was trying to avoid purchasing winter gloves because I thought, well, we never use them, so maybe I can just borrow them, and that would, you know, be a smart way to somebody who owns them already. I can go and use them, and then bring them back. And um, so I, I borrowed from our friend Sherry two pairs of gloves, mm -hmm. as one does. And now, here's the thing about gloves that you might not know if you live in Arizona or in a warmer climate and you don't use gloves regularly. You cannot utilize your phone when you have gloves on. And so if you're trying to take a picture or follow the map to figure out where you're going um, or maybe connect with your husband over a Zoom call during the march, um, any of these situations where you're required to access the screen, where you swipe anything or type anything, you have to remove the glove. Now, smart people who live in these winter conditions and know what to do with their gloves when they take them off and put them back on regularly, don't lose their gloves. Humans. Yes, but... <laughs> But someone like me who shows up and I'm very flustered and very confused about what is this white stuff falling from the sky uh, gets got got a little bit. Um, yeah, I just I, I disorganized, I would say, and would go to stick it in my pocket. And occasionally, I guess it would miss or I don't know what exactly happened because I have lost. And I did this I in the Metro. When I lost one, I actually went up to the booth and I'm like, did anybody turn in a glove? I must have looked like a biggest moron because the guy's looking at me like people don't turn in gloves, lady. If a glove oh, drops, yeah. <laughs> well, I, someone I, is going to swipe that quickly. I'd probably go try to sell it somewhere. I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I was I was also pleased with the fact that <laughs> when, when you first reported the, uh, the the missing glove from the Metro, uh, that it the missing glove served as both an example for you of how how low our society has fallen that no one yeah. would take the time to turn in the glove yeah because of course on the metro with people rushing to and fro in the middle of a giant u.s city yeah. um if someone saw a glove they would just interrupt their itinerary for the day and go find the booth where one would <laughs> turn in a glove and make sure that the poor owner of that glove uh. would be reunited with it later but then you you were also you were also kind of upset because you thought well probably someone swiped it because yeah. you're from California and you don't realize there's no person on earth who would swipe a single glove. That's just not something. Oh yeah, I totally stole this glove from some lady who was on the. I I just spotted her. I'm like yeah, I could totally steal a glove from her. So unless it was like some kind of bizarre gang initiation ritual to steal a single glove i think that glove is probably still riding around on the metro probably sodden now with like melted boot snow and shoved under one of it, the bench seats it and... didn't make it onto the metro this was on the platform 
So this was when no. we were looking at the map to figure out which uh, which subway we were going to get on, which uh, this is also a very confusing and stressful experience to try to follow the navigation of this labyrinth and understand which train to get on and what the end line is. Now, we got it figured out now, and now we're kind of pros at it. But in the first day, now the first day, let me tell you, uh, we went to go get our Metro cards. And uh, just as we were getting there, the gentleman was coming out of, the station manager was coming out of the booth. So I, I tapped him and I just said, is it possible for you to help us figure it We are literally new to this. I've never done this. I don't even know how to get a card. Can you just help walk me through it? Because I'll be able to figure it out once you teach me. I said, was, oh, was come he, over here. Was he coming what? out of the booth, the station manager with a single glove? trying oh, to it. trying to run someone day ma'am you your your glove your glove ma i still had two at that time so i i still seemed fairly sane so uh he walked me over and he was showing us what we want to get and here's the prices and this is how they works and this is how you look at the line and you know he's just given us the whole spiel the whole overview and so he helps us get our metro passes and then he says now some things going on this weekend he says, there's the, uh, there's the life march. And he kind of stops and looks at me. And I said, well, that's what we're here for, actually. And he said, no, that's what I'm talking about. He goes, tomorrow's my day off. And maybe I'll see you there. And I said, all right. And we gave each other a high five. His name was nice. Sean. So keep Sean in your prayers, the station manager at the um, Metro Center station, which was the first one that we went out of. Okay. And so I just thought that was really. Did, did you have did you have like any pro life paraphernalia about no. the person that would have tipped them nope. off, or just you're an out of towner? You I'm might just an be here for the okay. Yeah, okay. yeah, good, that good was maybe by the... Sean. Yeah, yeah. I so can see was... why they made him station manager. <laughs> you know, he didn't find my glove though. You know, I hadn't lost it yet, but it would have been great if he had known you where found I would eventually. <laughs> I found your glove. It's on your hand, both of them actually. <laughs> be careful, people swipe right. those. Here in That's DC. Right. Yes, yes. No, on the on the whole topic of gloves, though, it this is this is I will just say as a as a native of the Midwest, gloves are very much like socks. It is mm. not at all uncommon to find a single glove with no clue what could have happened to its mate. So unmated gloves for like cold weather dwellers are are not all that much less common than unmated socks for the rest of the the world which is why as a kid one of the tricks one of the life hacks for living in those cold regions is your mom would take really heavy yarn and i know our, our midwestern listeners are already nodding because they know where this is going and your mom would take your mittens and she would sew this really one end of a really heavy long piece of yarn to the cuff of one of your mittens Mm -hmm. And then she would sew the other end of that really long piece of yarn to the cuff of the matching mitten. Then she would thread one mitten all the way through the arms of your winter coat so that you literally <laughs> had two mittens dangling by a piece of yarn. But those mittens rose and fall together. You could not lose one of those mittens because they were attached. to. So then when you put your jacket on, you have like this long piece of yarn behind your back and like next I wish to I had I wish I had known about this hack ahead of time this would yeah. have been good information well, I'm not going to blame let you. you sew her mittens to a piece of yarn 
we wouldn't have this problem. She's obviously. probably she's probably going to wish she had. That's right. Well, I I feel very bad, but I was I've already been uh, on Amazon looking for replacements, so hopefully I'll be able to find something comparable for her. I felt mm. just awful, and now I'm going to be going around uh, mitten and gloveless. So Can't, you can or was it was it the same hand, or can you make any... a mismatch pair? Like you lost the left from one and the right from the other, so you can just kind of look like a crazy person. But at least um, your hands will be warm. Let's see. I managed to lose the same one because it's the one uh, that I take my my hand out to, you know. Well, it will make you look slightly more crazy, but you can just put the the one backwards and wear yeah. it like that. I'll probably do that. You, and people because might I've already spare change if you do that. <laughs> That's why I thought the glove was swiped because I thought if someone needed anything, if one is better than none, I guess so. Um, all that to say, we're going to do fine. We got through the March today in the day that has the poorest weather conditions that are predicted for this week. So um, we managed to to make it through. And I'll tell you, it, it was, um, we, we got here uh, Wednesday. And then on Thursday, the boys and I spent the day doing kind of the Washington, D.C. mall uh, museum you know, tour. We just- Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell, tell, had... us, tell us about your day in D.C. Well, we started- March day. Yeah, so we started with the Smithsonian History, uh, American History Museum, and then we hit the natural science, then we hit the space science. Now, before I get to the fourth museum, I'll just say that um, the American history one was pretty impressive regarding the flag that you get that have they have on display which is from the war of 1812 it's the flag that inspired francis scott keys to write the star-spangled banner nice. so that was that was really neat but was frustrating and what was just another interesting uh, kind of snapshot of where we are as a culture where we are as a country was when you you get to the end and they have a video playing and the video is showing all the different times in history's history and the kind of circumstances where the flag is represented and you see you know the picture the famous picture of the flag being raised over Iwo Jima you have that famous picture from 9-11 where the firefighters are trying to to hoist the flag and and various other situations and then they have one that represents uh, is represented at a gay pride march and the boys and I were standing there watching this and we just had that kind of sigh of the frustration over um this being inserted. And when you walk through the museum, there are a lot of representations of not necessarily history from the founding of our nation to now, but more this ideological influence over the past four, five, six decades, really, um, which which mostly has to do with the sexual revolution. And, you know, it was just kind of one of those frustrating experiences as a mom, as a homeschool mom, as a Catholic, as an American, to kind of see the way that our history is being represented to Americans, but to anyone who is visiting who may not be from our country, to kind of have it almost encapsulated and summed up under these issues, these you know, so-called rights issues, but they're all centered on, a lot of it was on quote unquote gender equality, but it's represented more under, you know, women's rights and the the same-sex attraction and all that and drag queens and things like that. So that was, that was kind of a frustrating experience there. But when we, the last museum that we hit was the Holocaust Museum. 
And I've never been, I highly, highly, highly suggest you go. I had, I had been to it many, many years ago in my early twenties. And uh, so this was a second round and I wanted the boys to see it. And I wanted them to see it in light of what we were marching for, because you have this, this time in history and this human atrocity where we know it happened. We learn a little bit about it. Hopefully in class, when we're in school, we should understand the the gravity of what occurred there. But then when you face it, when you face the pictures and the videos and the stories mostly that are told throughout, and then you get into some of the nuances and the details of how the entire uh, final solution was carried out. It's, it's one of those things where it reminds me of when we see the images of aborted babies and how graphic and just mind blowing and, and kind of, it's, it's impossible to believe that that actually happens, but it's, it's happening silently. It's happening all around us. And it's very similar to what was being carried out in Nazi Germany, where it was just, people were not fully aware and could not comprehend and could not believe in so many of the testimonies that you're reading about or you're hearing about um, when you go through the museum are some of the American soldiers and some of the medical personnel that were first on the scene as they were just, you know, once the concentration camps were being liberated and they're just could not believe what they were seeing. Yeah. Yeah. The boy, the boys and I just finished uh, watching band of brothers. And of course in the, uh, the second to last episode, is well, a spoiler alert in case you haven't watched the Band of Brothers series. But in the second to last episode, they're in the Easy Company of the 101st Airborne, is which the show follows, is in Germany. Uh, the war is is winding down, and they're basically just kind of doing my like kind of mild patrols, not much threat. And they come through this forest and notice that everything is just silent. And then they come out of the forest. And you see the you see the faces of the soldiers, but they don't show you what they've seen. And then they show you one of them sprinting back to camp to report to Major Winters. And Major Winters is like, "What is it?" And he said, "I I don't know. You just have to like." And then you forget words for those GIs. They had no idea these things existed. There 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 was no frame of reference, in even in probably even in human history at that point. For right. what they had just walked into. So anyway, yeah, uh, yeah, that's boy, that's that must was, have been incredible. Yeah, it it was, and I like I said, just sort of in light of what we were about to go and march for, you you realize that even though Roe v. Wade has been overturned, this this fight is still something that we have to be willing to speak up about, and we have to be willing to stand up for. And that was sort of the message as well at the rally. Um, with the speakers and with the homily from uh, today at mass where um, his eminence, Reverend Earl Fernandez, who is the the celebrant of the mass, he gave a beautiful homily and he made the point that we as Catholics can't be indifferent. 
We can't be indifferent on this issue. We can't assume that this is going to be fought in politics and in the legislature. It's not going to be fought um, even at the Supreme Court, as we see, you know, we had this horrible decision made 50 plus years ago and then it's overturned. Thanks be to God. But that overturning just simply sends it back to the states and that this has to be about a conversion of heart, of individual hearts right. to, to not desire this and want to pass these you know, the, the fact that we have abortion that's legal and that states are now working hard to enshrine them into their state constitutions, that if we just kind of sit back and and hope that it's going to be handled at the level of, of politics and legislation and um, executive decision and, and judicial decisions, um, we are missing what we're called to as Catholics. Right. Yeah, the, the the battle is now on our our front doorstep, which yeah, is yeah. you know here in Arizona with the whole abortion access Arizona movement, where they're trying to collect their what three hundred eighty three thousand signatures to get yep. a constitutional amendment legalizing abortion all the way up to birth here in Arizona, and that effort is is well underway. And so yeah, exactly like you said, it's that fight has now come to us. It's not a fight in Washington D.C. or in the Supreme Court anymore. It's, it's right here where we live. Yeah. And we, I, I, again, I don't, I don't know that we fully take seriously what is placed on our shoulders as Catholics who understand what we're called to here when defending the sanctity of life. This is the most innocent and the most vulnerable among us who have no voice. And we are appalled by things like the Holocaust and we should be, and Catholics should have been, you know, should be the first to stand up against something like that. Um, you know, I pray that never anything like that ever happens again. But the boys and I were talking about as we were heading to the march um, after we had gone to the Holocaust Museum, that this right now, the fact that that children are ripped out of their mother's wombs, which was descriptions when they were describing it, with the Holocaust describing, and I hate to sound graphic here, but this, describing what was seen and what had been done to these bodies. And it you could have taken the words that were being used to describe the, the horror committed against these human beings. And you could transfer that over to a description of what an abortion actually is, detail by detail. And it would be the same descriptions. And so if we are horrified as we should be with what happened in Nazi Germany. We have to have that same horror and that same sense of justice being done by standing up and defending and speaking out. And even if it it means that you lose friends and even if it means it was one of the gentlemen at the at the uh, march today at the opening rally was the president of Students for Life for Penn State. And he talked about how, you know, he's he's in mission territory. They're a small group, but they're a convicted group. And they are a group that he said, you know, every day he thinks about how um he may lose friends for his stance that he's unapologetically pro-life. There you have it. 
from the mouth of Becky herself. What was the March for Life really like in Washington? Maybe you can be a part of it next year and have your own experience. If you want to find out more about what's happening with the Catholic Conversation, visit EWTN.com slash radio so you don't miss future episodes or catch up on maybe what you have missed. I'm Ace McCain, going to bail out, and I will see you again next weekend. Remember to let God define who you are, and we'll do it again with Catholics Coast to Coast. We'll be right back. 